Hi, this is Father Don Planty, pastor of St. Charles Borromeo Catholic Church in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to the St. Charles Church Talks podcast. So it is said that St. Augustine said that life is a book and those who don't travel only read one page. He never actually said that. It's ascribed to him. He did say that we have to study the book of the world. By that he actually meant we need to study nature and by studying nature that leads us to God. In any event, travel has always been part of the Catholic spiritual experience, especially when we think of travel as pilgrimage, setting off on a holy trip for to fulfill a vow, to ask for particular prayers, to ask for a particular favor or particular grace. And there are certainly an innumerable holy places and shrines, tombs of saints, places to inspire devotion and faith. And they represent two things, really. I mean, God is, God is three things. He's the fullness of truth, the fullness of goodness, and the fullness of beauty. And those are the ways that we go to God. We go to God through the, what is true, through what is good, and through what is beautiful. Because everything that is good and beautiful and true mirrors ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty, who is God himself. Well, pilgrimages to these holy sites often mean two things. It represents the via caritatis, the way of charity or the way of goodness, because when we go to these holy places, we are reminded of the examples of the saints that are buried there or of the holy things that happened there. And we see also all the other uh, devout saints. We see that the current living communion of saints that are all there together on pilgrimage. In the same way, a lot of these places also represent the via pulcritudinis, the way of beauty, because so many of these places are beautiful architecturally or even the setting of them, and that really inspires us to remember the beauty of God. In any event, there are so many wonderful and beautiful holy places in the world that can help us grow in devotion to the Lord, to the saints, and in charity for one another. And I've been especially blessed to travel and live many places around the world. It was really hard to pick 10, but I figured I'm on a roll with these talk about talks about fave, fave, top 10 faves. So I've done top 10 fave inspiring books, top 10 fave inspiring movies, top 10 fave inspiring works of music. Uh, tonight we're going to do top 10 fave inspiring places. Eventually I hope to do top 10 fave inspiring poems and top 10 fave inspiring works of art. All right, so starting with number 10. And I will have a list available for those of you who stick around afterwards for pub time. I'll have the list available for you of these top 10 places. So you can start checking them off on your bucket list and going yourselves. Right? Number 10, the Three Sisters. That is the Three Sisters Cistercian Monasteries in Provence in France, in southeastern France. And these monasteries are named Sylvacan, um, Senanc, and Le Toronet, right? What are these Three Sisters? These are three extraordinary churches and monasteries that were built in the 12th century as part of the Cistercian reform and renewal. The Order of St. Benedict, the Benedictines had grown very fat and lazy and wealthy and uh, a little opulent and somewhat decadent. And so along came St. Bernard of Clairvaux and reformed the Benedictine order with the Cistercian revival, the Cistercian renewal. And part of that, and returning to the original charism of the simplicity of the Benedictine order, was a noble simplicity in the architecture and in the decoration of the monasteries as well. So there was a great flowering of sacred architecture in the 12th century, in the 1100s, especially including Cistercian architecture. All over France, but also in Italy and Spain and some other countries, uh, they built great monasteries with a noble simplicity. And they were also, of course, 
to foster the monastic life of recollection and prayer and quiet, they're built in remote places, which means actually naturally beautiful places. And three of them, they're called the Three Sisters because they were built around the same time, and they're relatively close to each other, are these Three Sisters of Provence, Sylvacan, Senanc, and Le Toronais, right? The rule of Saint Benedict, which Saint, uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux was seeking to return to, said, Saint Benedict says at the beginning, he says, We're, we mean to establish a school for God's service. The monastery is supposed to be a school for God's service, to teach monks how to serve God, right, in communion with one another. And St. Benedict writes about, in his rule for monks about answering the invitation of the Lord to shelter in his kingdom and to rest on his holy mountain. Those terms, of course, come from the Psalms, to shelter in his kingdom and to rest on his holy mountain. And of course, the motto of the Benedictine order is ora et labora, right, pray and work, in that order. Prayer first, but also work to balance out the prayer. And these three great sisters of Provence, these uh, three great monasteries, are three particularly beautiful places where they're no longer operating monasteries. Right now, they're all museums. Um, but there are three great places where you can see how the beauty and simplicity and nobility of the architecture and the setting with the churches and the cloisters and the whole monastic city, as it were, really fostered a life of prayer and work dedicated to God. So. These are just three examples of you know, numerous monasteries all over Europe, which are so beautiful, but I find these especially beautiful in their noble simplicity and in their location. So number 10, the Three Sisters Cistercian Monasteries in Provence. Number nine, Antigua, Guatemala, which is called Antigua because it's the old capital of Guatemala. The current capital of Guatemala, of course, is Guatemala City, but about 45 minutes over the mountain is uh, Antigua, Guatemala, the Antigua capital of Guatemala. It is a 16th century model town of model town planning. So it was laid out in the 16th century, in the 1500s, in a classic Renaissance grid. And in the 16, in this, in this 1500s, every major religious order came from Europe and established residences and presences in Antigua. Now, Antigua was the colonial capital of Central America. Mexico City was the capital of Hispanish North America. Lima, Peru was the capital of Spanish South America. And for all intents and purposes, the capital of Central America was Antigua, Guatemala. So all these religious orders showed up. The Franciscans, that is, the Franciscan friars, the poor clares, the Franciscan nuns, the Jesuits, the Dominican friars, the Dominican nuns, the Mercedarians, the Benedictines, everyone showed up and built a whole city block which comprised a Baroque church, a monastery, and the other associated buildings and fountains and everything. Imagine a whole town, a whole city, perfectly laid out, and every other block is a Baroque, Spanish-American marvel of religious architecture. It's spectacular. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been, not to mention the fact that it's set in this amazing setting where it's surrounded by volcanoes, including Volcano Agua, which every time you look up, you can't believe that it's actually looming so heavily over this town. I mean, it's, it's enormous. It's the, of course, Antigua Guatemala was wiped out by volcanic eruptions twice in its history, in any event. So a lot of it's in ruins, but the ruins themselves are spectacular. In any event, Guatemala is nicknamed the land of the eternal spring. And in Antigua, it's always spring. The bougainvillea is growing and creeping on everything. And uh, the weather is spring-like. It's warm and sunny and then breezy and cool in the evenings, kind of like today, you know? 
every day. And so it's a beautiful place in terms of its setting and its, and its uh, weather, but the architecture, the sacred architecture between the churches that are still standing and those that are in ruins and the, and the, and the, um, the cloisters are spectacular. One of them is now a big hotel. So Santo Domingo, which was the D Dominican uh, friar's place, is now a luxury hotel, and it's great to go there and just have a, a nice beverage. And learn. But it's also a place of prayer and pilgrimage. Uh, Saint Brother Pedro, who was a layman, who was dedicated to the Franciscan simplicity and worked miracles in his own life, is buried there at the Franciscan church in Antigua. And people come from all over to light candles and pray to Saint Brother Pedro, the first Central American saint canonized. So Antigua, Guatemala, Gorgeous, inspiring, worth a trip. That's number nine. Number eight, the California Mission Churches. I've been to a few of them a couple of times, but uh, it was exactly, let's see, it's nine years ago this year that a priest friend and I flew out to San Diego, rented a car, and in a week and a half, we did all 21 missions and like road food all up the California coast. And, you know, California, kind of like Antigua, it's spectacular, the weather's, you know, awesome. It's beautiful, you've got the coast on one side, you've got the mountains on the other. And of course, you've got these 21 missions beginning from San Diego in the south. The first mission, San Diego de Alcala, of course the city is named for the mission, right, that was founded there by St. Junipero Serra. These uh, missions were all founded in the late 1800s, late, late, late 1700s, late 18th century, beginning with Junipero Serra, and some of the later ones were founded after his death. But they begin at San Diego in the south, and they go all the way up to San Francisco Solano, St. Francis Solano, in Sonoma, which is the northernmost colonial mission. 21 of them. And each of them was a day's distance walking. So these days, you can kind of knock out two or three missions in a day because we've got vehicles. Of course, if you want to walk it, you could walk it, right? But the whole idea was, as friars were making their way up and down between missions and, and, and assignments, they wouldn't have to walk more than a day where they could be in civilization, have a place to sleep, and meet the friar, the other friars, other missions. So each mission is about a day's walk apart, right? And again, these missions were founded by Saint Junipero Serra, who was just canonized by what year was it? It was in the last. It was in the last. It was like uh, nine, eight or nine years ago that Pope Francis was here and at uh, outside the Basilica in D.C. canonized Saint Junipero Serra, founder of these missions. And uh, he's buried in one of the most beautiful, of course, they're all beautiful. I think they're all, they're all moving, but uh, the one I'm partial to is Mission San Carlos Borromeo, you can imagine why, right? Which is in Carmel by the Sea. I mean, talk about a beautiful spot on earth. Carmel by the Sea is pretty awesome, right? And the mission there is San Carlos Borromeo, which was founded itself by St. Junipero Serra, and that's where he's buried, and the mission named after this great Saint Charles Borromeo. All the missions are Spanish colonial style of architecture. And you have to remember that in those days, like the monasteries I've been talking about, these missions were oases of civilization. It was not just the church, but there was often a cloister, and there was a whole civilization there where the friars evangelized and taught natives who were converted how to uh, play the violin, to sing in Latin polyphony, agricultural methods, all different kinds of crafts and farming, and taught them languages and, and really brought an extraordinary level of culture to, uh, to, the, uh, to the California, to what was then, of course, um, northern Mexico, right? We're in northern California, but, but part, of, part of Mexico, part of the Spanish Empire, right? Um, 
And many of those missions to this day are active parishes. I think the vast, actually the majority of them are still working churches. And some of them even have guest houses you can stay in. So they're really beautiful. They're places of beautiful prayer, beautiful gardens. Again, that wonderful California weather. And really a testament to one of the great saints, Saint Junipero Serra, he had a trouble, he had a bum leg, and he walked all of these missions. I think often at times he would refuse to ride a, ride a burro. Um, and his, his, his um, motto was always, always forward, never backwards. Always going forward, never looking back. So number eight, uh, inspiring places, the California mission churches, you know. You can go to two or three. If you're in San Diego, there's two or three within a day's drive. Or again, you can take a week or so, a week and a half, and do the missions and road food. They got great tacos in California, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. Number seven, Cefalu and Monreale cathedrals in Sicily, in Italy. You know, Sicily, of course, is that large province of Italy, which is that... Um, that island that's uh, the, the football that's being kicked by the boot, which is Italy, right? And uh, because it is right there in the middle of the Mediterranean, it's, it was always the crossroads of the Mediterranean. Many different cultures passed through there, from the Phoenicians to the Greeks to the Romans, the Arabs, everyone, everyone went through Sicily. Even, you know, World War II, Patton made his way up through Sicily to liberate Italy from the Nazis. Um, Cefalu and Monreale cathedrals are unique, along, along with some other architecture in Sicily, including in Palermo, the capital, uh, because they are, in, they are constructed in the Sicilian Norman style. So what does that mean? Well, the Normans, that is from Normandy in France, invaded, because against the crossroads, in the 12th century, the 1100s, the Normans took Sicily, and they built Romanesque churches like were being built in France, but because it was Sicily and they had them available, these churches were decorated by Byzantine mosaicists. So you have these beautiful Romanesque churches which are known for their simplicity, the rounded arches, and a lot of wall space. Not so much window and light like the Gothic, but because there was wall space, the wall space had to be decorated, and they had them decorated by mosaicists, and they are spectacular. Uh, Monreale in particular, which is about a 40-minute drive outside of Palermo in northwestern Sicily, Palermo being the capital of Sicily, the Cathedral of Monreale has on both sides, on both walls, above the archways, it has a complete cycle of life-size mosaics of the principal Old and New Testament stories in glimmering, shimmering gold and multicolor mosaics. And in the apse, as in Cefalu, which is just east of there along the northern coast of Sicily, you have the Christ Pantocrator, that is Christ, the ruler of the universe, the, uh, the Christ in majesty, the ruler of all things, who is raising his hand in blessing and it is just spectacular. In Cefalu also, you have right below Christ in majesty, you have Our Lady standing like this, who is the image of the church, interceding for us and who leads us. Mary always leads us to Jesus. It's the church that leads us to Jesus, brings us to Jesus, right? That's at Cefalu. But Cefalu and Monreale, a spectacular church. As a matter of fact, I had a great spiritual, uh, and a lot of these I have, have received extraordinary graces as well, walking in the back of the cathedral of Cefalu and looking up and going, whoa. There's Christ in glory and then Our Lady. And, and, and all I could think was, like the apostles say at the transfiguration, Lord, it is good to be here. I mean, it was just so beautiful and so moving. And then I learned, what's the name of the cathedral? It's the Cathedral of the Transfiguration. It's like, yes. So those words from the Transfiguration came to my mind, and then I learned it was the Cathedral of the Transfiguration. Lord, it is good to be here. So Cefalu and Monreale cathedrals in Sicily. I'm going to run out of time here. 
but uh, we'll keep going. Number six, the Sainte Chapelle in Paris. Paris is an extraordinary city, the city of lights, one of humanity's great cities, uh, extraordinary place, great architecture, great museums, amazing food. It's got everything going on, um, beautiful river. Uh, but if uh, I always say, even prescending from Notre Dame, the cathedral, if there's one thing you must see in that city of extraordinary things to see, hundreds of extraordinary things to see, the single most beautiful thing to see is the Sainte Chapelle, which is on the same island as Notre Dame. It was built by Saint Louis, Louis IX, King of France, who died in 1270, and the Sainte Chapelle was his private chapel, which he built as his private chapel as king, but also as the reliquary to house the crown of thorns, which he brought back from his crusades in the Holy Land, and which is now kept in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. I don't know if you saw when the cathedral was burning, one of the Monsignors grabbed the crown of thorns and ran out and made sure that relic was not, not destroyed in the fire. In any event, 1248 it was consecrated, the chapel, personal chapel of Louis IX and the reliquary of the crown of thorns. It is the rayonnant Gothic style, like the, 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 the radiating Gothic style. Uh, the windows are wider than the stone pillars that support the windows. 7,000 square feet of stained glass. And there's not a crack in the masonry since 1248. My friends, being in the Sainte Chapelle is like being inside of a jewel, a gem. It's all glass. It seems impossible. And of course, all the glass is Old Testament and New Testament stories. I've been blessed to travel and go many places. To me, the two most beautiful interior spaces I've ever seen are the Cathedral of Monreale with those spectacular life-size gold shimmering mosaics and the Sainte Chapelle in Paris. That's number six. Number five, this could be a whole talk in and of itself, Guadalupe, Spain and Guadalupe, Mexico and the connection, which a lot of people don't know. Everyone's heard of, of course, Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico, in Mexico City, but she's named for, did you know she's named for Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain, in Extremadura, which is uh, southwestern Spain? Well, um, the, the monastery of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Extremadura is a miraculous site of, uh, or the miraculous statue of Our Lady, a very small statue of Our Lady, who was one of the patronesses, along with St. James, of the reconquest of Spain from the Moors. And there was a great devotion in Spain to her throughout those hundreds of years of reconquest of Spain. And she was really the leading, uh, the leading devotion of, to Our Lady in Spain during those years, including their Catholic Majesties, Ferdinand and Isabel, who finally conquered the Kingdom of Granada and after 800 years of warfare, finally expelled the Moors from Spain. We know that their Catholic Majesties, Ferdinand and Isabel, visited Guadalupe 13 times. And let me tell you, Guadalupe is a gorgeous monastery in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Extremadura in southwestern Spain. Uh, but it was so important, Columbus visited there before he sailed for the New World to ask for her patronage. And when he came back from the New World bringing the first Americans, the first Native Americans, the first American peoples to be baptized, were baptized in Guadalupe, Spain, Columbus having personally taken them there, and that's where they were baptized. Because she was the patroness, not just of the reconquest of Spain, but of the discovery of the New World. So, what happens? Years later, um, 15, 15, 31, Our Lady appears to Juan Diego at Tepeyac Hill. Now, uh, the, you know, the different apparitions of Our Lady, which have been approved, are named after the places, right? Our Lady appears in Lourdes, she's Our Lady of Lourdes. Our Lady appears in, in Fatima, she's Our Lady of Fatima. Our Lady appears in Tepeyac, Mexico, what's she called? Our Lady of Guadalupe. Why is she not Our Lady of Tepeyac? Right? 
Well, there are a number of, number of theories, but we know that when she spoke to St. Juan Diego and revealed herself to him, she spoke in his native language, Nahuatl, which is basically Aztec, right? And when he went to the bishop, Fray Juan de Sumarraga, who of course was Spanish, uh, and he told the bishop what her name was, he used his Nahuatl. He probably said the word Cuatlatzupil, which means she who crushes the serpent. Uh, the, the, uh, the theory is that, that, that Bishop Sumarraga, having been steeped in the devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain, being Spanish himself, when Juan Diego said that she was Cuatlatzupe, he would have heard, oh, she's Our Lady of Guadalupe. So Our Lady of Guad Guadalupe, Mexico, is named after Guadalupe, Spain. Let me tell you, Guadalupe, Mexico is spectacular, especially at Tepeyac Hill. The new basilica is pretty hideous, 1974, but uh, the colonial basilica is beautiful. And the chapel at the top of the hill where she appeared and where he gathered the roses is gorgeous, and you can see all of Mexico City from up there. But also the original monastery of Our Lady Guadalupe in Spain was first built in the Romanesque era in the 13th century. Then there were Gothic elements, Mudejar, that is Muslim artisans doing work in the cloister, and then finally Baroque fixtures. And it's, it's spectacular. And it's, a, it's worthy of pilgrimage. You can stay in the monastery, in the cloister there. It's beautiful. And there's nothing in the town uh, except like maybe two restaurants and three bars and this gorgeous monastery, but worth a visit. Guadalupe, Spain, and Guadalupe, Mexico. That's number five. I got six minutes to do four, three, two, and one. Number four, St. Anthony's Monastery in the Eastern Desert of Egypt. I may be the only person you ever meet in your life that's been to this place, in any event. I had a great devotion to St. Anthony the Abbot, uh, and one of the great spiritual classics, and it's on my book of top 10 favorite books to read, is The Life of St. Anthony by St. Athanasius. St. Anthony, we're talking about St. Anthony the Abbot. That is St. Anthony, in the Easter he's known as St. Anthony the Great, St. Anthony the Father of Monks. Not St. Anthony of Padua, who's named after him, later on in the 1300s, right? This, this is uh, St. Anthony the Great who died in 356 and who founded the first monastery in the history of the world in the eastern desert of Egypt around 300 AD. Uh, I was doing an internship in Cairo uh, and so I had the chance to go visit this monastery. It's about a three and a half, as I recall, three and a half hour drive, three hour drive south of Cairo. You go down the Nile and you go east into the eastern desert toward the Red Sea and you're going to the desert, 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 there's nothing, and then you see a speck in the difference of color. And you get closer, closer there's, you see some green, green, you get closer, and here's this monastery, which has been there in continuous use since the year 300, 1,700 years, oldest monastery in the church. Now it's a Coptic monastery, Coptic uh, Christian monastery, but palm trees, because there is a spring there that that gives forth 100 cubic meters of water a day. That's like 100 cubic yards of fresh water a day out of the mountain. And so St. Anthony fled there himself to find solitude, but then others found him and they created, he started a monastery there. He himself lived in the cave up on the mountain, which you can also go up to. And uh, I tell you, it's just a glorious place because uh, from at the top of that mountain, you look down and you see the monastery below and you see nothing but desert. As far as the eye can see it, in the distance on the right, you see the Red Sea. And I had one of the greatest graces of my life there. It was just a particular grace. Having climbed that mountain, uh, I was probably delirious because I climbed the mountain you know, in August in the middle of the day. And it's pretty hot in Egypt in August in the middle of the day. In any event, just sitting on a rock at the top of that mountain outside St. Anthony's Cave, overlooking the desert, 
I received a great inspiration of the Lord saying, you know, what else do you need? In the, see, the desert, as we see in the Old Testament, along with the top of the mountain, the desert is one of the privileged places for encountering God. Because there's nothing in the desert. So you're, you're face to face with like, either it, all there is is me and sand and sky and sun, or there's also God, right? Like there's nothing there. There's, no, there's nothing in the desert. You're left alone with God. And I just had a great revelation from the Lord at the top of that mountain saying, you know, all you need, all you would need to be perfectly happy here is bread and water because you got me and that's all you need. There's nothing else here. There were no cell phones back then anyway, but there was like the no distractions, just desert and God. All you would need is bread and water. Awesomeness. The monastery of St. Anthony in Egypt, in the Eastern desert. They have retreat rooms there too. You can go, I never did that. I just was there for a day trip, but you can go spend nights there and make a retreat there. All right, I got three minutes and three places. So, number three, Seville, Spain for Holy Week. It is the ultimate Catholic experience. You must go to Seville for Holy Week and I will hook you up with my friends. There are 70 brotherhoods which lead processions. Each of the long processions has hooded penitents that are really doing penance. A lot of them are shoeless. They might be wearing uh, uh, chains between their ankles, right? And each of these long processions has their own brotherhood. They have two pasos or floats, one with images of our Lord, one with Our Lady, and they all have their own band. And uh, for all of Holy Week, all of these 70 long processions make their way day and night through all the main plazas and streets of Seville, and all the mysteries of the Passion are represented. These floats have life-size statues of Our Lord and Our Lady, which are hundreds of years old. They're extraordinary works of sculpture and of art, and then they're decorated with flowers and candles. And my friends, it is, if there's any perfection this side of heaven, it's those, it's those floats at Holy Week in Seville. It's just, it's spectacular, the detail and the beauty and the effort that goes into making these works of art with the silver and the candles and the, and the embroidered tapestries and these gorgeous uh, statues of Our Lord and of Our Lady. And people in the streets and they're devout and they're yelling and Our Lady goes by the, Guapa, beautiful, beautiful, you're so beautiful. Like, because they're Southern Spanish, so they're really great, they're really wild. Yeah. And then they're feasting, right? Because as it turns out, the Archbishop of Seville every year dispenses this because it's so hard for them to do all this penance and look at all these floats and everything and do all this work. So every year you're dispensed from abstinence from meat and from fasting on Good Friday. So we'd been up almost all night looking at these processions. We saw one of the most famous processions on Good Friday morning of the crucified Lord alone coming over the bridge over the river. It was amazing. And then my host, who's the brother of a priest, took me to the bar for breakfast. And so he's, he orders two cafes con leche and dos, dos panes tostados con jamón. So two coffees with milk, café con leche, and two toasts with ham. I'm like, it's Good Friday. And he's like, bula papal, there's a papal bull that lets us eat meat on Friday. I was like, seriously? And he turns to the barman, you know, the guy behind the bar, he's like, right, there's a bula papal? And he's like, yeah, there's a bula papal. I was like, mm, I don't know. But when in Rome, do as the Romans. I later learned that there might be something about a papal bull in history, but definitely the Archbishop of Seville, every year it's part of the tradition, dispenses those in Seville from um, fasting on Good Friday and from abstaining from meat. So I did not sin gravely by eating my ham toast in the morning for breakfast on Good Friday. Anyway, it is the ultimate Catholic experience. There's nothing I've ever seen or anywhere in the world is like, it's just, it's outrageous. You must go. And that was number three, so I'm out of time. Number two, of course, is the holy city of Rome, 
what can I say? They keep the Pope there, right? It's the center of Catholicism. It's got all these great basilicas, all this great art, all these great saints, you know, uh, uh, Peter and Paul, Lawrence, Cecilia, Agnes, St. Catherine of Siena, at least her body or heads in Siena, right? Uh, Blessed Angelico, Ignatius of Loyola, Francis Xavier, Pope John Paul II, Pope John XXIII, right? I mean, Rome, glorious art, glorious uh, architecture. And then, of course, number one, the greatest pilgrimage site of all, Jerusalem and the Holy Land, right? From Galilee in the north, Nazareth and uh, Capernaum, Jesus' adopted hometown, to Bethlehem in the south, and of course, the Church of the Nativity in, in Bethlehem and the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which comprises the Hill of Calvary and the empty tomb. All surrounded by the beauty of the land that described in the Bible as the land flowing with milk and honey. Spectacular. Um, you know, the Basilica of the Annunciation in Nazareth, where the Annunciation took place, that is where the incarnation of the Son of God to save us began, at the site, of, at the floor, in um, front of the altar, where, according to tradition, the house of the Virgin Mary was, where she received the Annunciation, the message from Gabriel. It says, Verbo caro hic factum est. The Word became flesh here. In other words, this happened. This happened in history. The Word became flesh and was born and suffered and died and rose from the dead. And you can visit these places and walk in the footsteps of Jesus and where all of these amazing things happened. But I'll just finish with this. I'm a little over time, but just finish with this. For me, the greatest grace of, I've been to the Holy Land twice now. It took me quite a while, like, like 16 years as a priest to finally make it to the Holy Land. So don't feel bad if you're young, you haven't been there yet. You got, but go. But I found that the greatest grace of the Holy Land was there's all these amazing places and they're great graces you receive inspirations. And, and uh, you know, St. Jerome calls, calls it the fifth gospel because then you can like imagine the setting of Jesus, you know, preaching to the multitudes and the Beatitudes or, or you, know, all the, you know, being on the Mount of Olives and weeping over the city of Jerusalem. It's spectacular, right? But the greatest grace of, I think, I shouldn't tell you because I don't want to ruin it for you. But I think the greatest grace of any pilgrimage to the Holy Land is ultimately that it's awesome, it's beautiful, you get all these graces, but you're not necessarily any closer to Jesus than you are here, right? Here you can pray to Jesus, you can meditate his word, you can worship him in the most blessed sacrament, you can receive him in Holy Communion. That's the whole point of the incarnation and of the sending of the Holy Spirit and of baptism. God dwells within us as in a temple and we can encounter him anywhere. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to meet Jesus, right? You can meet him here in this uh, ugly green carpet church in Clarendon. Right. So, my friends, um, life is a book, and those who don't travel only read a page. Travel with faith to these glorious places and grow in faith, hope, and love and inspiration. And I'll be handing out the list at pub time. Uh, so, God bless you. Peace. Thanks for joining us today, and please remember to subscribe. And if you enjoyed our show, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. May God bless you.